Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We got lots of the weightlifting and powerlifting in-person two-day seminars coming up all through 2019 and lots of great webinars, webinars. So check those out. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a Physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. Just living the dream. Not a boy. Your, be- your beard's looking good. Thanks, man. I mean, well, with, with flag setting the standard, we got to try to catch up somehow. Well, you, yeah, like your look is like the moderate look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Right. Mine's the aggressive look. It is. <laughs> Uh, speaking of, we have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also the clinical athlete, a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor for the newest course, Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. What's up, John? Nothing much. It's a pretty good day today. Looking forward to this yeah. talk. When's the last yeah. time you put oil in your beard? Uh, yesterday, because I went to the barber on Wednesday. Ooh. Okay. I'm spoiling myself now. So the oil comes the day after the barber? Yeah, because it used. I, I looked like Krusty the Clown when I woke up the <laughs> other morning. Like My beard was growing out this much yeah. and, and far. Uh-huh. So I got him to take the sides in. Now I'm going to take better care of it because now Eric Lagoy <laughs> Shout out. set me on a, a better path. Cool. Okay. So with that, we're also very excited to welcome competitive powerlifter and powerlifting coach of Precision Powerlifting Systems, Kevin Can, onto the show. Kevin, thanks so much for being on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm literally the only one here without a beard. Do you feel awkward right now? No, I actually feel like I'm better than everybody else. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. I don't know if I would consider <laughs> what I got going on a beard. It's mostly just whatever happens. <laughs> kind of. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're excited to have you on, man. So Kevin has a great podcast. It's it's called Boston Strongcast, and he does a lot of great writing on coaching philosophy on the website, on the uh, Precision Powerlifting website. He also happens to coach four people that we've had on the podcast, one of which is you, John. That's right. Uh, Recent addition. Yeah. And, and Mike Amato and Zach Gabor. Do you, does Steph train Steph under you too? Yeah. So that's what I thought. <laughs> So you've got that that whole Boston PT and wellness crew, and our aim today is to dive into the weeds a little bit on the topics of constraints-led coaching, and within that, the practical application of dynamical systems theory to coaching. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, we've got enough caffeine in our systems to, to uh, facilitate such a discussion, but before we get into that, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself uh, both as a coach and an athlete, and include your somewhat recent shift in coaching philosophies. 
Yeah, so if I have an undergrad degree in this field, I have a graduate degree in kinesiology. I always kind of wanted to be involved in some type of like strength and conditioning at the college level, but I ended up interning at Harvard and I fucking hated it. Like it was just, uh, it was just not for me. And I kind of was lost for a period of time and I actually stopped coaching and then I started teaching. And at that point, I wasn't really sure which direction I wanted to go in, but my hours got cut and I, I needed a job. So I ended up at a gym that had nothing but, for the most part, nothing but competitive power lifters. And at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about powerlifting. I, I kind of knew what exercises were involved, um, but, but that was about it. And I kind of had my first experience with the sport itself. Uh, Fred Hatfield actually came up with Josh Bryan and did a, um, an ISSA seminar or something at the place that I was working at. And we all went out for like food and drinks and stuff afterwards. And I ended up getting shit faced with Fred Hatfield. And we just started like talking about like powerlifting stuff. And, uh, and I was asking him questions about the sport and like training in Russia and squatting a thousand pounds. And I was like, this sounds, sounds kind of cool. And, uh, about a week later, I ended up signing up for a meet. So, um, I probably hadn't put a straight bar on my back or did a bench press in like eight years. But I was like, fuck it, let's, let's do a meet, let's see what happens. Um, and at this same time frame, about two, three months after this, Boroshiko did his first American seminar at the same place that I was working at. Uh, so I, I was just fortunate enough that I had run into these people so early on. And I started working with Shiko for the next three or so years. Um, learned a lot from there and like ended up falling in love with the sport. Um, but Working under Shiko is a very like volume data driven program. And at the time, I'm trying to mimic it for my athletes. Like I, I kind of always had the framework of mimic those that are successful, try to understand what they're doing, you know, ask a lot of questions and stuff. And then from there, you know, once you kind of get that understanding, you can start making some uh, changes that are more yours. Uh, what I soon realized was, you know, the few lifters that I had, they were basically like interns and ones that weren't paying me. Um, was it worked for a period of time, but then it stopped. And then I'd, I'd make these little changes and that would work. And then it kind of stopped. And I got to this point where I started to like really doubt what I, what I was doing because st- stuff just wasn't working. Like sometimes like it doesn't. So I started doing like a lot of research about like, do we really need variability? Um, is, you know, changing the reps and the intensity, is that just enough to be able to push progress further? And I stumbled across dynamic systems theory, like just in a simple Google search. Uh, so I had taken what I had seen, sent it off to Mike Amato. I'm like, hey, do you know anything about this? And he gave me some stuff to start reading. Uh, I started reading it and it started to make a lot of sense. So me, you know, I played sports through college. Uh, Ten years after college, I was still involved in competitive sports. And this just really resonated with me. Like it made a lot of sense. Um, you know, the, the nonlinear pieces of it and how we didn't just, it's not like all of a sudden I give somebody a, a optimal amount of volume laid out in these guidelines and they get stronger. Uh, so it kind of gave me a nice little framework. And, um, from there, I just kind of started fucking around with it in the gym and from there, just kind of put the pieces together. What were some of the things that you were seeing? You, you mentioned like we would do some things and then it just it, it would stop working. We'd do some things and it would stop working. 
we had uh, John Kylie on the show recently, and I know he's been of, of some influence to you as well with this. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the existential struggle that you were having with this po- more formal periodized approach? You know, what we would think of as, as these, as these, you know, blocks, these linear blocks that the athlete's going to respond this way because I'm, the stimulus is this and then I'm going to change the stimulus and the athlete's going to respond this way. And can you talk about the discrepancies that you were seeing in the gym as you were programming this way versus what was actually happening with the athlete? Yeah. So, so basically like for those unfamiliar with like how a Shiko template kind of works, um, there's guidelines to follow. So based off of the classification of the athlete, there's recommended number of lifts, average intensities, and then there's pieces. The lifts kind of broken up into pieces. And if the technique is going wrong in this one piece, you have this one exercise or series of exercises that can, that can fix it. So I was following these to the T, like the number of lifts, the average intensities for each of the lifters. And what I was realizing was one in training, the lifts would look good at 70, 75, 80%. But then all of a sudden, when we have to lift 90% or more, competition comes up, everybody's really nervous, techniques breaking down, and just the results weren't there to what I had anticipated them to be there. Um, you know, it was just, I, I, I think it, what had happened, like in this scenario here, is I'm basically like, you got a person in front of you. I have these guidelines. I'm putting these guidelines on this person, but I never once took into effect that person uh, that's in front of me. So I think, you know, when I started thinking, you brought up John Kiley's stuff, and this was the first thing that kind of like his his papers were the first thing that really like opened my mind to paying attention more to the human that's actually in front of you. Um, they're not just. It's kind of like what you're getting to. It's not predictable. And it's not reproducible. So there were even times where I would a block would work really well, and I'd run that same block with new maxes, and we didn't get the same results. Sometimes you'd still get a little bit more there, but if somebody's putting five, ten pounds on a lift after twelve weeks, could they have lifted that extra five pounds twelve weeks ago? Like it's not really enough of an improvement that was like really selling me on stuff. And you know, people were starting to hit a lot of plateaus. Uh, the technique it just wasn't being fixed the same way. And I think what had happened. Um, you know, we'll talk about like Kylie's paper is there's a, a sociocultural influence on all of this stuff. Like the Russians, when they, they go to schools as kids and powerlifting is an actual subject in these schools. So they're raised with the belief that the Soviet system is the best way to do things. They're, they're also groomed to believe that the coach in front of them knows what they're doing. So this, this cultural aspect of it, I think ties into the success that Chico has with his programs and his athletes. And basically what I was learning was I'm not Chico. My lifters aren't his lifters. And we were running into this like problem where just results were just stalling quite a bit. Um, until I started making, making a few changes. Jared and John, you start thinking about like some limitations or, or non linear patterns that you see, but I can say personally, I have these conversations with the coaches at our gym and I, my clinic is inside of a, a weightlifting gym. So it's, it we're mostly competitive weightlifters, snatch and clean and jerk. But the, these are the conversations that I have with the coaches. It's like these athletes who could be crushing it in blocks. Let's say they're six weeks out from a meet and 
on paper, they're supposed to be the most fatigued at this point. We're, we're, we're kind of in an intersect of like high volume. The weights are also getting heavier. So we expect them to be super fatigued, yet they're setting PRs now in the middle of a block. And okay, that's a head scratcher. Well, just imagine when we, when we taper down and we take, we take down the volume and, and they peak for this meat, they're going to be monsters. And then what happens is they shit the bed at the meat. And we've seen it the exact opposite, you know, and it's, Having trouble with this elaborate Excel sheet that we've got, and you've talked about this too, Kevin, I know, is just like all of these arbitrary metrics that we can track, what do they actually mean? And can we actually take patterns from them? Or is it all just noise? And I think that goes into this constraints-led approach that's a little bit more, oh, I'm going to have you talk about this, the difference between how you were doing things with this this very linear approach, uh, data-driven versus now this constraints-led approach. Can you talk about what that means exactly and then how it's different? So I think the, the biggest difference between what I was doing before and what I'm doing now is what I was doing before is it was coach-driven first, right? Like I had this optimal technique in my head of what is best for each, each lift, the squat, the bench, and the deadlift, regardless, regardless of the person. Um, I had optimal volumes laid out for those for those same people um you know if you were a newer lifter you get less lifts at a lower average intensity and i would structure it in a way where i deemed where the high stress medium stress and low stress days came in and i think a constraints led approach is the exact opposite it becomes learner first so it's 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 finding a way to kind of guide that process along as opposed to dictating um, that process, I think, in the, in the simplest of terms. And basically, so what a constraints-led approach is, is there's constraints that as coaches, we can alter. And there's some things that we can alter, but they're, they're things that affect performance. So there, there are three big ones. They actually have the athlete themselves. So in this case, the lifter. So their height, their weight, their mechanics, all of that stuff is, is important. Like that is part of them. And that's going to dictate some of the things that they do. Um, but as Kylie mentioned in his article, emotions, beliefs, all of the cultural relationships that they have with the sport, all of those things go into the individual constraint as well. So if you have a lifter that surfs in the internet a lot, like Instagram and believes like, and has these certain ideals on what will work for training and i have different ones that's something we got to talk about and that that's what we got we got to work on there um the second constraint is the environment so it's not much of this that we can actually change like i'm in boston we're in a warehouse gym in the summer it's hot as balls in here and in the winter it's really cold um those are things i can't adjust but uh another factor and i feel this is extremely important is the actual social relationship amongst all of the people within the group um, so that, that social dynamics, um, and I might be getting ahead of myself here. Um, but you know, when we talk about like predictive processing and how it works for the individual and how that individual moves, this actually expands into a group setting as well. Um, so like some of the things that I do to try to influence the social dynamics, um, I have everybody create an Instagram account to post all their videos. So one, so I can look at their videos and write the programs and stuff. But two, it allows others to view them, to comment on them. It helps create a group dynamic. We have a large iPhone group chat, not for those with Androids, because 
they're the worst. They're not even human. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're better than human. You got two. Animals. You got two on this show yeah. right now. I'm yeah. with you, Kevin. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, the androids can't get added in. But like, it's a large group chat that everybody just kind of like. I mean, my phone's always going off because of it, but it creates a group dynamic for even the ones that are not local to be to be part of the group. I, I think a lot of these things are often overlooked um, within the dynamics of training. I think a lot of it gets missed. Um, so my, my coach now, Jeremy Hartman, trained at Westside Barbell uh, for a period of time. Like he would go there during breaks and stuff. And like just hearing some of the stories on the training environment in there, I think it's something that the modern day powerlifting culture misses is that like that group dynamic. Uh, and then the third one, this is the one that's pretty common uh, is the task. So typically coaches will use variations. So that's how we change the task. Uh, it could be the equipment that we're using. Uh, and whatever, whatever we want to do, pauses, pins, um, changing stance grips, all of those things. That, that tends to be the one that the coach changes the most. And I think what we want to try to do too, it's not like in either or with any of these constraints. It's, it's having a good enough relationship with the person that you're coaching to be able to choose the right exercises, reps, intensities, that kind of hits all of those constraints at once where you're kind of deem that there's, I don't want to say like things that need to be fixed, but maybe improvements that uh, we need to make in, um, you know, in, in one case, I'm just, I'm going to, this will help make sense of this. I think is the emotional response is not usually something that gets trained often enough. So there's situations that I like to put lifters in. So as, as John knows, we lift, we lift heavy every single time in the gym. And if you put somebody in an awkward position that they're uncomfortable with and they're pushing weights close to their capabilities, like it hits those same emotional responses that you tend to hit um, in, a, in a gym. And I think for me, the whole reason why I always held back on that, and you touched upon this a little bit, Quinn, was the fatigue aspects. Like we have these preconceived beliefs on how fatigue can positively or negatively affect performance. And as coaches, we tend to dictate those biases onto the lifters. And I think in a lot of cases, the fatigue is caused by us, not necessarily them and their actual uh, performance. One distinction there that you made versus what you used to do, you said you used to program plan, pre-plan low, medium, high stress days, regardless of what the athlete had. You were just assuming you're going to feel this way, kind of what you just said. You know, it's almost you should probably, you're probably going to feel beat up at this point in the block. And maybe they do feel beat up, but do they feel beat up just because they were expecting to feel beat up because you told them? And now it sounds like you just said sessions are heavy every single day. Can you qualify what heavy means in, in this regard and how you reconcile that with like how fatigue comes up? Because I think this is the real crux of, of a dynamic system is that you're kind of allowing the response to dictate future programming. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So heavy for us, we're talking like I put RPE eight and a half to or above for one to two hard sets, but I want it heavier than an eight and a half. I want it near failure um, for those lifts that we're doing. And basically what will happen is when a lifter, I mean, I, I hate even using the fatigue for this, but if we see a small drop in performance on a day in the gym, like that's where we have a conversation. We decide what the best course of action is for that lifter on that given day. 
So it might be taking three to five moderate weight sets and just kind of um, feeling it out a little bit uh, and just getting some work in. But ideally, when they come into that gym, they work up to, I give them suggested weights uh, to work up to. It's not RPE based, it's not percentage based. It's every week kind of, I've, it's almost like trying to predict the weather seven days out, but I try to put a weight on there that I think is going to be extremely challenging for them. And they have the ability to make decisions, but I want spots on there. I want to see them straining through reps. Um, and we do that all the time, every single day that we come into the gym. Um, yeah. Well, I want to, I want to clarify for people listening to the lifter is still very much in the driver's seat for a lot of this. It, it's based off how hard you feel that set's going to be. And he's going to give you a range. Um, and, and I've done this with my lifters for a while. Um, you work within that range. You work within, like if we're doing a rehab, you work within what's tolerable. And in this case, it, it's a hard set, but sometimes you're going to overshoot. Sometimes you're going to undershoot. You're in the driver's seat and the communication between coach and athlete is very, very high. So it's not one of these things where it's all pre-planned and you just get, you know, you run into a wall with intensity at some point, you know, it's understood that the eight and a half and nine might be less this week. It might be more than last week. He can tell you, I overshoot what he tell it. Well, I, I don't miss lifts, but I typically, because my ego is so big, <laughs> go past what he writes every single week, every single day. Um, just to kind of push myself because that's the kind of lifter I am. Uh, but it's very, it's very lifter centric. Uh, and it's kind of what John Kylie talked about when we talked to him. The old school mentality was I write this program. If it doesn't work, it's your fault. And what I, at least in my experience with this and, and the shift that I've made is if if this doesn't work, then it's something we have to work on and communication has to step up. And it's very, it's much more lifter oriented than just lift heavy every day. Right. So I want, I want people to make that, to understand it's very clear that there's a lot of communication there. The athlete has a part in this whole process and it's lift heavy, but it's, it, there's constraints in that. And I, I, I think too, when, you know, I would rather a lifter overshoot than undershoot, but there are times where, and we kind of talked about this briefly via text, John, that like about missed reps. Like I think missed reps are one, they're important because they start to teach the lifter their capabilities. So if we're trying to enhance the training skill of each lifter, and that's what that communication, and that's what I view training as practice. We're practicing to be power lifters. And part of that is having a high level of, of skill in the gym to make those decisions that, that John was talking about, like, let's see how we feel this day. Let's, you know, part of it's one, entering the gym and understanding that we don't know how our sleep, our nutrition, how much we hate our wives or how much our, our jobs suck that day. We don't know how much that's going to affect performance. It's something that we understand is going on, but we come in the gym, we warm up, we see how it feels. We make decisions based off of how it feels. And sometimes you're going to make the wrong decisions. And error is how we learn best. So if you always come into the gym and you're always undershooting RPEs, or in the case before when I was running a Shiko program, it's always easy. Under any circumstance, you can 
you can 100% complete that training. It doesn't tell you anything about the lifter and what they need to work on outside of just the mechanical aspects of lifting. There's zero emotional response to it. So if we're trying to improve that training skill of that lifter, that communication is extremely important, number one. But they're going to miss reps, and they can't be scared of missing reps. And one issue I saw with the submaximal training was lifters got scared to miss reps because they felt they shouldn't miss reps. But failure is part of every sport, and it actually, in a lot of cases, will tell us a lot. And as we get into maybe more of the like exercise design stuff, I literally will put them in positions that they'll fall over sometimes because it's punishing an what I deem an inefficient technique, and they'll have to figure it out. And those those large errors create large responses later on. Well, and you shared a paper with us about perfectionism and performance and injury rate. And this this kind of leads us into that a little bit because what I find is, you know, people avoid misreps so much, they focus so much on uh what were the two different types of perfectionism? I'm blanking on those. Uh oh goodness gracious, I got it right here, I think. But if they focus on that perfectionism, it actually hinders performance. They they think so much about the task and they think so much about failure and not meeting that standard that they actually get a decrease in performance is what they found in the paper, um, which they also correlate with an increased risk of injury. I'd like to see a lot more data on that. Um, but I, I always call it with my athletes choking your training. When you go in and, and you just you almost try to force it and you're so afraid to do poorly and you get so frustrated that the next thing you know, you're missing stuff you should be smoking. You're so stressed out about your training that it's not enjoyable anymore. And you see people tend to burn out. Um, missing reps, at least within this context, can be can be helpful to understand what you have to do better. Uh, and, and to not focus so much on, oh my God, I missed that one. My training block is is destroyed. My fatigue is so high. What am I going to do now? Instead, you can go, okay, well, let me have people help me put the bar back up and course correct and figure out what I've got to do to make that right this time. Um, and it help, helps create a little bit healthier of a mindset moving forward. And I think it also helps. So when that happens to the frustration of the lifter, so this is a sport that is going to get frustrating at times. And I think having those hard training sessions that don't go well sometimes help train that athlete to have that mental toughness to be able to survive long, long-term training. If we're coming in and you know hitting just sub-maximal weights and gaining, like I understand the argument that this builds confidence and success. But what happens is when that athlete goes like with the Shiko program, we would test 17 to 22 days out from competition. This is the only time we're taking like near max singles like that. If a test doesn't go well, like the pouting would go on for weeks because they just, they weren't, they were just so used to success, success, success with the light weights that all of a sudden something didn't go well and they couldn't mentally handle it. Um, and I think, you know, like I was saying before, I think lifting heavy on a daily basis trains those emotions and trains that the mental aspect of, of training. Yeah, I found it on the paper. Um, Professionistic concerns are consistently associated with negative processes and outcomes, maladaptive coping and negative effect, affect. Whereas professionistic strivings, which they didn't correlate with decrease in performance, are often associated with positive processes and outcomes, adaptive coping and positive affect, 
or inversely with negative processes and outcomes. So obviously athletes that want to do well and, and really work to try to do better and they have those professionistic strivings is a good thing. But when they focus on mistakes and they let mistakes beat them up, like you're talking about, Kevin, 21 days out, they don't hit the squat they want or they don't hit the bench they want or they don't anticipate. That's just that's just one day. That's a snapshot of where you are right now. And it can't predict where you're going to be 21 days from now. Uh, and the pouting starts and the negativity starts that can decrease performance. And it does. And that's what I saw. So when a test didn't go well. So now the change. So, you know, I had lifters, I had 22 lifters compete in the month of April. And there were times, you know, and I, so I'll put an exercise in, we'll start at fives and fours and you kind of, it's there for them to get used used to it. And then we drive them up to singles. So when we were getting closer to the competition, we were taking singles of the competition lifts about two weeks out. And there were a few lifters that didn't have, that didn't hit the numbers that they wanted to hit um, at, at that time period. And this time around, because they've missed lifts in training, they just, a few of them were just like, hey, I know that's not here today. I'm gonna back off. I'm just gonna get some work in. I'm gonna attack my accessory work. I know it's going to be there on the platform. Where, you know, a year ago, if we had done the same thing, it would have, they literally would have just stewed in those negative thoughts until they ended up having a bad meet. I have a question to throw at Quinn because I think weightlifting, where it's just as frustrating of a, of a sport, but weightlifting, I feel like it, at times misses are more expected. Am I off base on that? I think powerlifting has this thing where almost every lift has to be perfect, especially when you're doing the competition standard. But there's more leeway for different positions, drilling different positions, pulling from different positions in weightlifting. And that strive for perfection is a little bit less. And what, what do you think on that? Mm, I think the strive for perfection is pretty comparable just because of the technique orientation or the, just the, the focus on technique. Uh, but I think that lifts are more commonly missed because, because of that same factor. And because they're submaximal, you can take a bunch of attempts and you don't crap out. You know, you can take a snatch 10 times and miss 10 times and you'll walk away from it. Okay. If you miss a, a max effort back squat 10 times in a row, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be out on a stretcher. So it's, it shouldn't be that way, though. That's still not training. And I wanted to get to that, too, because I think weightlifting abides by the same principles. But I, I think the technical aspect that's a little bit higher of a bar than powerlifting does mess with people a little bit more. But to take a step back to kind of reconcile what Kevin's saying here for people who maybe are having trouble differentiating this approach from a more traditional linear approach. And when I say linear, it can still be like a daily undulating periodization. It could medium, high, low, medium, high, low. But the, the idea is that you have built out this progression on paper that you expect to happen in the organism or in the system. And it sounds like Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong. What you're describing is you've got a skeleton, you've got a program built. You've got a skeleton built out. You have a plan. But each day, going up to a heavy RPE is still relative to the athlete. And John, like you said, you might hit that eight and a half, nine and a half RPE, but that doesn't mean the actual external load on the bar is going to be, if it's a good day, then that's going to be higher. If it's a bad day, maybe it's a little lower, but you're still hitting that relatively heavy set. 
I, and that's every day to drive an actual training response. And you are, Kevin, are you basing, you're just kind of allowing if fatigue crops up and it seems to be a consistent pattern where it's affecting performance on subsequent sessions, then you can make an adjustment. But let's say they have a bad session, a single bad session. Well, maybe that's just noise. Let's see how the rest of the sessions go. Let's see how their performance emerges after this. We'll just monitor that. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, so it's we're always looking at objective measures. And for me, that's estimated one rep max. Uh, we do a mood score upon entering the gym. And then there's a similar to a session RPE as we're exiting. So these are things I'm paying attention to. Um, but one bad day. Yeah, let's see what happens in a couple of days. One bad week. Um, typically, if I see performance drop for two weeks, that's when I'm going to start to like change things up drastically. I mean, there might be times where it's just like, hey, my gut is telling me that this athlete is just done with this training stimulus right here, and I might change it up a bit, which might mean like just changing the variation, maybe just tweaking the actual variation that they're doing at this current moment uh, just to change things up a bit. But Usually I'll let performance run because you sometimes it's just like, hey, this is just a bad week. They might have a lot of stuff going on that's negatively affecting them. And then on the other side of it, you just see this huge jump in progress. And a lot of times too, which is this is just a correlation, nothing more than that. But a lot of times when they're having these dips in performance, you'll start to see like little nagging things start to pop up too, where my elbows hurt, my knees a little sore, my lower back's a little stiff. Like these are common complaints. And we have conversations and we make the right decisions based off of the individual, their goals and that training day. And a lot of times on the other side of that, when they train through that, even though it's been a shitty week or two, there's just these huge jumps in progress. And like it, it coincides with that, those little nagging things just dropping off too. And we're not really altering much. You know, those eight and a half, nine and a half on that given day may be less absolute weight, but Psychophysiologically, they're going through the exact same efforts, probably doing the same number of sets. You know, we may tweak a position here or there just to alleviate some of the, the discomfort, but in a lot of cases, like it, it's a weird um, coincidence. Deloads is, is a, what I want to talk to you about. And I think this is a good segue. Commonly, deload weeks or whatever are planned. So we're going to build for three weeks. We're going to build for four weeks. We're going to deload on week four and five. That's pre-planned. It's assumed that we're accruing fatigue over the course of the building weeks. You're going to be tired. Your performance is going to drop off. So let's be preemptive about that and throw a deload. Let's stay ahead of that accrued fatigue. And that way you can just, you know, keep building, keep building, keep building. Do you have planned deloads or do you let the performance dictate when you deload. I let the performance dictate when I deload. Um, so even when I was working with Shiko, so he didn't do like um, deloads like you're you're used to seeing, like a large drop in volume, maybe some some intensity kept in there to hold on to some training adaptation. Um, so I've I've never had like a coach that did true deloads. I don't do them the same way with my coach now either. Um, so I kind of let performance dictate it. Uh, it's rare that we ever deload like that. Like, so basically, let's say you come in, you have a you have a bad day. Hey, we're gonna chalk this up as a bad day. 
you come in the next day, it sucks too. And now you're starting to get some like nagging things really building up. We have a conversation. It's just, it doesn't seem like it's appropriate to kind of keep pushing. All I'm going to do is I'm just going to take those top sets and I'm just going to be a little bit more conservative with them. Like, let, let's work up to this. If this feels good, maybe take a second set here and we'll move on to the next day. So it'll be a drop in intensity and volume, but there's still, in a lot of these cases, like there's still, you know, tripling 85 to 90% on a, on a set, but maybe just the one instead of the two hard sets, no back offs, a um, little bit more moderate on the accessory work, but we don't really deload very often. I don't, I haven't seen a need to. I had this, I have a 57 kilogram lifter who is, you know, competes at, at nationals. She hit deadlift PRs in 17 of 19 sessions. So she went eight straight weeks of just crushing deadlift PRs. Um, if I had ever just pre-planned a deload in there, we probably don't get that same progress. We get this, you go three weeks and then you have a drop off in performance. And then there's a period of time where you have to build back up again because you don't want to just jump right in. So you're losing good amounts of training to, to get back to that spot. So I think it can actually handcuff lifters in the long run. So would you say that you are deloading? You are just deloading just enough so that they can still, hopefully you're finding that spot where they can still get a training adaptation and just long enough, only as long as you have to. Yeah, exactly. So if they feel good on a, you know, if I, I'm conservative on a top set and they come in and they smoke it and they're like, hey, I feel pretty good. Fucking load it up. Like, we'll pick it right back up where we left off. Like, nothing's written in stone. And like John can tell you this, like, if you look at his program, there are no sets written. There's just reps and exercise, a suggested top weight. And it's up to, so the program is the communication between us and our relationship and the lifters training skill and me just guided, guiding that process along. So, you know, novice, so Steph, who's been on the podcast, we call her no rep Steph around here because, you know, she's a novice lifter. She misses a lot of reps. She's learning how to figure, figure that stuff out. Um, so, you know, in those types of cases, it's just, they need to, they need to figure it out themselves, and it, it, it's really hard to explain without actually like seeing the pro the process. Because like people are like, you make absolutely no sense um, <laughs> with what you're doing. But it's it's like going to practice, like in any sport. Like I played soccer, we'd go to practice, we'd do some drills, and we'd go home. Like that's that's how I look at it here, and we do just enough not to freaking kill them. And you know, if it's there, we'll do more. If it's not, we'll do less. Like we just. It's, it's making coaching decisions and guiding the athlete along. So the, the deload part, it's, it's kind of up to them. And like, if somebody doesn't want to be that competitive in the sport, I'm not going to make them train through pain. Like if you, you're uncomfortable, we'll, we'll have a conversation. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. Um, for the ones who want to be competitive at a national level, like we have conversations and we train hard through that stuff and they, they take even less, less time. That's especially after explaining with Steph as a new learner, it's probably a good time to talk about movement variability and your thoughts on movement variability, especially uh, the thing that I, I enjoy looking at, which is the U-shaped curve between novice, intermediate, and what would be considered expert lifters and their movement variability. So you want to take a stab at that real quick? Yeah, so what you'll see is there's, vari there's high levels of variability between novice lifters 
and elite lifters, and then the intermediates are kind of in the in the middle of it. Um, so novices, basically, why you see a high amount of variability is because it's it's their nervous system is just filled with noise. Um, their you know their perception of what the actual movement is supposed to be like uh, is just they just don't have enough information yet to actually have a good a good um, structure to lay down those movement strategies. Um, where at the other end of the spectrum, an elite lifter has enough variability to be able to adapt to any environment. So what you'll see is with the novice, when I move there, let's take a squat. So between wide stance, close stance, comp stance, high bar squats, with the novice, they'll be able to lift this roughly the same amount of weight, no matter what position I, I kind of put them in. And it kind of all looks the same. It's just kind of all over the place for each one as they're trying to figure it out. For an elite lifter, they're able to figure it out and they're able to lift the same amount of weight roughly. Like there'll, there'll be, they, there will be some differences here, but within 5% at least. But they'll be able to lift similar amounts of weight in all of those different positions as well. Where an intermediate, I can find a position where there's, you know, they might put their feet wider on a squat and all of a sudden they see like a 25% drop in one, one rep max. So they just haven't, they've developed enough stability to be able to maybe do the competition lift with you know an intimate intermediate level of expertise but they haven't developed that next level yet where they can just be strong under any circumstance thanks again kevin uh jared and john thanks guys appreciate the conversation and uh we will talk soon yeah thank you very much thanks for coming on man